As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We begin today our Holy Week journey to the cross. Many churches today will also read the full Passion account, so we have Good Friday also on Palm Sunday. But liturgically at All Souls, we choose to walk with Jesus day by day in both Kairos and Kronos time. So today, we simply celebrate and reenact Palm Sunday as the crowds did, with hope and jubilation. And yet, unlike them, we also understand the tragedy of this day, and we have to live in its ambiguity, in its emotional rawness. How are we to rejoice with the crowd as their king enters his holy city when we know this is not the king they were looking for and they killed him for it? The gospel accounts include all the details necessary to serve as the backdrop for this kingly procession. The animal for Jesus to ride on was provided with no questions asked from the owner. None was needed. According to custom, a dignitary could commandeer property for personal reasons. This was their right. Placing garments on the animal and on the ground recalled all the regal accessions recorded in the Book of Kings. They were laying out the red carpet for Jesus, this king of the Jews. And of course, the choice of the animal was taken right out of a well-known messianic prophecy from Zechariah that was read today. And the crowds cried out the familiar royal psalm, again, the one we read today, which was always chanted when their kings entered Jerusalem. The right hand of the Lord does mighty deeds. Come, O Lord, and save us. Come, send us prosperity now. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But herein lies the ambiguity. What kind of messianic king were they expecting? N.T. Wright in Simply Jesus speaks of the three strands of messianic hope that are present in the ancient prophets. The first is the royal figure who would come to bring justice to the whole world and bring an end to the rule of the pagan nations. The prophecies in Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel promise that Israel exile is to be reversed under the rule of an anointed king who will end up ruling the whole world. The crowds on Palm Sunday were sure that this was the man who would liberate them. The text tells us his followers joyfully praised God for all the miracles they had seen. Jesus had fed them with miraculous power, raised a man from the dead. He surely could overthrow Rome. And Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday actually fit all these expectations. Only 160 years earlier, another, Jude, another Jewish leader, a would-be Messiah, Judas Maccabeus, had also ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to the acclaim of waving palm branches. And this messianic figure did have an army, and the first thing he did with that army was march into the temple. The Syrian despots Judah's army was overflowing had desecrated the temple, even offering pigs to the god Jupiter on Yahweh's altar. And Judah and his army were cleansing the temple. This had been a defining moment in Jewish history, 
And as Jesus, too, rode in on that donkey and later cleansed the temple, they could only think that it might happen again. The second messianic hope spoken of in the prophets, and one that first century Jews anticipated is perhaps more difficult for us to understand. They somehow believed that God himself would come and display his mighty power of salvation. These hopes were wrapped up in the centrality of the temple, the earthly habitation of God. In Malachi 1, for example, it is prophesied that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Isaiah 45, the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all the people shall see it together. Isaiah 52, 8, your sentinels lift up their voices, together they sing for joy, for in plain sight they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Surely they also understood that in Ezekiel there was that amazing prophecy when, when Yahweh left the temple prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Thus the Jews were awaiting a human Messiah conqueror and the supernatural display of the power of Yahweh as he would return and rule from his temple. But what they could not envision was that the human Messiah would also be God, humanity and divinity in one everlasting Messiah and Prince. And so they killed their king who proclaimed to be so. The Apostle Paul, who also once rejected the man and killed his followers because this man claimed to be both God and the Messiah, later understood this truth. From our epistle, Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For here we find the third strain of messianic promise found in the prophets, and that was that of the suffering servant. But these truths were hidden from the teachers of the writings at the time of Jesus. The role of this servant was known, but veiled in mystery, and surely this servant was not the Messiah. Jesus alone understood his messianic vocation was woven together by all three strands of the story, that he was the Messiah God who would rule a kingdom, a very different kingdom, a kingdom that would replace all earthly kingdoms, a kingdom breaking in with his appearance, and yet the time had not yet come for its fulfillment. But first, Jesus knew he had to be the king who would suffer, the servant king spoken of in Isaiah 53. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. The foundation of the rule of this King Jesus would then be his choice to suffer and die because he understood that only that act would bring about Israel's and humanity's rescue from the dominion of darkness 
For Jesus knew the will of his Father, again in the words of Paul, to have all God's fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Yes, God himself would return as an everlasting ruler who would reconstitute his temple again in Jesus, where earth and heaven now dwells. But first he must die the most humiliating shame and suffering known to humanity. Jesus knew this about himself, and he knew that this triumphant beginning would have a tragic ending. And so only Luke adds the addendum that we heard to the triumphal entry today. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes and the days will come when they will dash you to the ground. Jesus weeps, and not for himself, but for his people, for their pain for their coming death and destruction. Innocent lives will be lost. Babies will be torn from their mother's arms. Their holy temple will be left for nothing. The chosen of God will suffer unimaginable loss, death, and even separation from their God. Only one other time in the Gospels is Jesus recorded as having wept, and there too he wept at the sight of death and suffering. O Jerusalem, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Here, a holy city who had been preparing for hundreds of years for their king to enter Jerusalem, for their promised Messiah to come, yet he knows they cannot accept their king. No Messiah that the Jews could recognize could ever suffer such a shameful death a torture reserved by Romans only for criminals and slaves. Torah states that he that is hanged on a tree is accursed. I recently read a memoir by a young woman who had fled the genocide in Rwanda. Her and her sister were told by their grandmother right before they saw her murdered, run, and they ran, and they kept running for months. Later, as a refugee teen in America, Clementine Wamarara read Eli Weissel's Night, the memoir of another young person who saw and experienced the hell that humanity could create. And she knew that she was not alone in her suffering and found solace in the solidarity she felt with this man she would later meet. In Night, Weissel wrote this, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Three years later, in another camp, Weisel witnesses the agonizing slow death of a young Dutch boy who was hanged for collaborating against the Nazis. And all the prisoners were paraded before this boy, 
and they were stood there and they were forced to watch him die in agonizing death. And Weisel recalls that, behind me, I heard a man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from these gallows. The French Catholic writer, France Moriac, who first heard this account from a young Israeli reporter from a French newspaper, knew the young man's account must be written down so that the human suffering in the Holocaust would never be forgotten. And so he encouraged that reporter, Weisel himself, to write night. And he wrote these words in the preface. And I, who heard these words, who believe that God is love, what answer was there to give my young interlocutor whose dark eyes still had held the reflection of that angelic sadness that had appeared one day on the face of a hanged child? What did I say to him? Did I speak to him of that other Jew, this crucified brother who perhaps resembled him and whose cross conquered the world? Did I explain to him that what had been a stumbling block for his faith had become a cornerstone for mine? And that the connection between the cross and human suffering remains, in my view, the key to the unfathomable mystery in which the faith of his childhood was lost. For Jesus' tears on Palm Sunday were for that young Dutch boy. They were for the children who died in the German camps, for the children who died in the Rwandan massacres, and they were for those who still reject him for the suffering with which humankind has visited upon and mutilated God's good creation. So who is the king you worship? Jesus, our personal valet, who protects us and makes our life go easy? Jesus, the power broker? The church has sometimes tried to see herself as a force in the world and aligned herself with human institutions, thinking that they can build the kingdom on earth. But history has shown this to be a tragic mistake. As I was contemplating these choices this week, a wonder-working Messiah or a suffering Messiah, I was reminded of my own choice and of the time in the life, my life that led up to my adult conversion to Christianity. I was 21 years old, a senior in college, a well-known theater girl, crazy party girl, but in truth, I was covering up the fact that I had buried myself inside a cloud of inconsolable sorrow for my lost childhood. I didn't know the way out of that cloud. I didn't want to stay in it. I didn't want to be a victim. I wanted to be something and somebody else. So I was searching. I was searching for a key, too, but not a king. I had rejected Christianity. I had had my fill of the triumphal liberal theology that I had been raised on. I knew that the world couldn't be changed simply by human beings believing the right things. So I searched inward, which led me to reading all kinds of books on Zen Buddhism. I was searching in the East. I had signed up for a transcendental meditation workshop. I was actually within days of receiving my personal mantra. But I also was studying psychology, and I had taken a class called Existential Psychology. How's that for a 70s word for you? I think today we just call it 
behavioral psychology. But we were studying Maslow's hierarchy of being, the pyramid, you know, where you um, progress from pure physiological needs to those of belonging and self-esteem until you actually get to this the, the pinnacle of the pyramid, which is self-actualization. And so the professor was asking us, well, what do you think that you need to uh, become self-actualized? And he had a list, and he read off the list, and we were all supposed to choose. So among those choices was a satisfying high-income job, inner peace, self-transcendence, having a family, and then this professor, who was very upfront about not being a Christian, listed among those choices, redemption and forgiveness of sins. What? I had never seen that on any chart of Maslow's hierarchy, and I've never seen it since. But there I was, in a circle of eight students, contemplating these choices, and as each one offered their own, I was thinking, okay, what am I gonna say? And, and self-transcendence sounded really, really good. But then, it came to me, and I just simply, literally blurted out redemption and forgiveness of sins. And I surprised myself as much as I surprised everyone in that room. Nobody else chose that. That was a completely medieval concept that we all knew was to be rejected. But that's what I wanted, and I said it. I said, I want redemption and forgiveness. I remember even being embarrassed, but... I had turned my back on Jesus, but I had attended enough Holy Week services that I knew right then there was only one place where I was going to get that redemption and forgiveness. I knew in that epiphany that I desperately wanted forgiveness, but not just forgiveness. I wanted someone to take my pain away. And these Eastern gods that I had been exploring, they didn't offer forgiveness. They hadn't suffered on a cross. They hadn't suffered. So it took a few more weeks, but as it turned out, I chose Jesus as the only God I could follow because he was the only God that suffered and that would suffer from my pain and not just my pain, but the pain for the whole world. So Fleming Rutledge tells us that there are two ways we can travel through this week. We can go as spectators there for the show or we can go as penitent sinners, knowing our need for Christ. So as you walk with Jesus this week in his journey to the cross, do not hold back. Read the scriptures, and you will find that you will be staring evil in the face. We will watch our Lord in his hour of darkness encounter the real enemy, Satan himself, and suffer in unimaginable torture as he dies, so that we may be forgiven. But let us not miss the peace, his suffering, and our own. For as Jesus told his disciples on the night before he died, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. <laughs>